in this very first episode of the Muscle Lab podcast, which is hosted by myself and my master's level students that make up the Muscle Lab, we have an overarching discussion on why it's important to be cautious when drawing conclusions from scientific data. Moreover, in our field of applied physiology, we note that often findings are equivocal, leading to a lot of ambiguity in how to interpret these findings. We then discuss what it's like to disagree on research findings and ultimately how to implement these findings into practice to make exercise training recommendations. In general, there's a lot of great discussion and each member of the lab gets to chime in and give their input on a specific area of interest to them. We hope you enjoy. So in academia as students, which is everybody else here, um, or professors or instructors that we have, you know, science means to us a systematic way to really study something, whether it's in an observational manner or in an experimental manner. And in the muscle lab, the muscle physiology lab, that's what we do. We've done both observational studies, which is to just say, hey, we're going to have this group of people and they're going to run through whatever protocol and we're going to see what happens. If anybody's familiar with our work in the muscle lab, we did a study looking at daily 1RM training. And so that looks at, we had three individuals, they came in the laboratory and for 37 days straight, they just did a max squat and we just observed what happened. Did their squat max go up? Did it go down? How did it fluctuate throughout? Now that's only three individuals, so we can only take so much. That's a, that's a case series, as opposed to an experimental design, which is, or a randomized control trial, let's say. And we have two groups or more, and we take group one through a protocol and group two through a different protocol, and we compare outcomes at pre and post testing before and after the study. So in the observational design, that's a scientific design where we just wanna see what happens. Right? We have this protocol, it's usually something that's very novel and we wanna observe what happens. So we have to be careful about how we, in science, we can make conclusions from these studies because in an observational study, you can't conclude if the intervention was effective, let's say there was a positive change. And in our 37 day squat observational study, there was individuals improved their squat max from day one to day 37. But we can't conclude and say that that type of training is better than a more traditional, we're going to train three times a week in a moderate resistance training repetition range because it was only observational. We didn't compare that to anything. In a randomized control st uh, uh, study or an experimental design where we have one, uh, we have two or more groups compared against each other. What can we conclude from that? Well, if group A is better than group B, that training intervention, and I use training because in our muscle physiology laboratory, we use resistance training as our model to leverage adaptations. But if we conclude that training intervention A is better than training intervention B, but we can't conclude that training intervention A is the best, all we can do is conclude that it's better than what we compared it against. Also, we can only conclude that typically on the group level, on average. That's another important point that I want to get everybody's opinion on in a moment. When you look at science, oftentimes we're talking about averages or group means, you know, and this is in a lot of fields. If we're talking about how a drug impacts something or impacts uh, um, a population, it's usually on the group level. You know, this 
this many individuals or this was effective 95% of the time or whatever it might be. That doesn't mean there aren't people that didn't respond to that drug or wouldn't have responded to a better dosage. Right? We see this in resistance training to get back to our model, which is, you know, we've had the term high and low responders and moderate responders over the year in resistance training. And sometimes there'll be a study and a few people just won't get bigger and won't get stronger when they perform resistance training. It's possible that the intervention used just wasn't ideal for them. It's also possible that the dosage for that, those one or two people that didn't progress wasn't enough for them. So in science, I think it's important to remember that one, when we observe something and we don't compare it to something else, we have to be very cautious about our conclusions because we can conclude maybe that this intervention was effective, but not that it was better than something else because we didn't make that comparison. When we have an experimental model, we could conclude if we compared two or more groups that group A was possibly better than group B, but not that it was better than a different training intervention that we didn't necessarily look at. So I think it's always important to keep those things in mind. Now, what I'm getting at really with this before I kick it to everybody here is that when we look at these things, very little is ever settled in science, especially in our field of applied science. And I know we'll get into this and everybody uh, in the room here today, this virtual room, if you will, is familiar with this concept, but nothing is really ever settled. So I've had a lot of you guys in class here. Um, and when I address the class at the beginning of each one, I think you guys can attest to this, that I always say my role here is to not necessarily teach you facts, because those facts are outdated, right? I, I can think of classes that I've taught in which from the first year, you know, I, I, uh, one of our, my colleagues, uh, uh, Laura Cantari is here. And Laura, you know, you, you sat in on my sports nutrition class um, the, fir the first year I was at FAU, which in the spring of 2013. I, I taught some things in there now that I don't teach anymore because there's, there's new data. And so I'm sorry you had to take that version of the class um, because I, I taught you some things that these individuals I, I've taught differently. But it, hopefully in five years, I'm telling you guys, hey, that information is outdated and we've moved on to something else. But I tell you at the beginning of class, I'm here to help teach you how to think. And that at the end of the semester, I expect and fully expect that you come out of this class disagreeing with me on something. And if I don't do that, especially in our field of applied science, there, there's so little on lifting weights that's settled in science. You lift weights, you get bigger and stronger. What's the optimal way, if you will, to do it? Nobody knows, right? That's why we're all here, especially on the individual level. Um, so I expect that you'll disagree with me. And that's what we do in, in these lab meetings that we have and that we'll, we'll do on this podcast and continue to discuss. So we have to be careful about what our conclusions are. And so, you know, Josh, I want to get your opinion on this. And how do you feel about that aspect of disagreeing on a topic? And how does it drive progress? And then ultimately, we have to take the findings, even if they're ambiguous, and we have to integrate them into practice. How can we do that? Can you give us an example or can you talk to us about when you have scientific findings, but it's not as clear as, hey, do exactly this in the applied physiology realm. How can we integrate that into practice? 
Yeah, I, I have a few thoughts here, but I'll, I'll try to keep it uh, relatively brief so that we can kick it around to the group here. Um, the first thing I'd say is, I think from an outside point of view, disagreement among people that, that consume science or conduct science might seem a little bit weird just because you're all looking at the same data. Uh, you all are, are very um, knowledgeable in the area. And it kind of seems weird that you can disagree on something if you're looking at the exact same data, but um, it happens all the time. We're on the, the fringes of science, if you will. There are disagreements. And I think that is what pushes, pushes the field forward and ultimately can, can influence, uh, you know, you know, making the, the practical implications of science as, as solid as possible. So even within the group here on this call, um, uh, a topic that I think we're all interested in is resistance training proximity to failure. And I think there are varying levels of opinions of, you know, w within that topic in and of itself that, you know, we, we all don't totally agree on, which I think is interesting that, you know, we all kind of think a similar way, but we can still come to slightly different conclusions. Um, and then from a practical perspective, I think something that I've been thinking about recently that I'd be curious to get your guys' thoughts on is the, the practical implications of this disagreement. So there's kind of two, there's two ends of the spectrum that you can go if you disagree with someone um, on a specific topic. So the first is a concept on one end of the spectrum is um, conciliationism. So that basically means, okay, I have a certain opinion and another individual that is also extremely competent has a, a different opinion. Conciliationism would say, okay, I should probably take the stance in between there because at the end of the day, why is my opinion more valuable than somebody else that is also an expert? The other end of that spectrum is um, what's called steadfastness. So that means that you kind of stick with your opinion. So point being is, I'm curious your guys' thoughts or anybody that wants to jump in here of kind of this difference between should we assume that the right answer is somewhere in the middle if we disagree with someone or should we stick to kind of our interpretation um, of the research? Something I'll chime in with and kind of just uh, conceptualizing why that disagreement may happen in the first place is, is some more limitations with the way that we do research. So from a textbook standpoint, when you carry out a study there, you're going to have a, a sample that has a certain inclusion criteria. So when we're looking to actually apply the findings of, of a given study, in the most textbook sense, we really can only generalize those to the, a very similar sample to what was actually studied. So when we're looking to apply these in the grander population, we start you know, blurring the lines a little bit of like, okay, well, maybe the subjects we're talking about this in, in the real world are a little bit older, maybe they've been training for a little bit longer. And so you start blurring the lines a little bit from what was actually studied in terms of the inclusion criteria to what we're trying to generalize the findings to. And that even adds more uncertainty to the little bit of uncertainty that's in the data itself. Um, and, and so that was the second thing I was going to say is that, you know, often in our field, especially there is never, well, not never, but there isn't often clear cut results that are clearly favoring one intervention over the other. Um, you know, especially in like an eight week training study, you know, the, the, the likelihood of, of large effect sizes and, and very clear statistical significance is, is not a very common occurrence. So often what this does is it leaves interpretations to the people that are reading the data, just like you said, Josh, and that's where your personal experience starts to color exactly how you view these results, even though the data are what the data are, we're looking at the same numbers, but exactly how we interpret those is open to our own personal experience and interpretation. Um, so those are the two things that immediately came to my mind, but in terms of 
the the kind of two approaches you said when you disagree with somebody I think you could go either way honestly and I think it kind of comes back to what I said is, is like how much do you rely on your own personal anecdote and experience to view that as a lens to which the, to view the data um, and that would kind of you know if, if you're very confident you probably would lead more in the, the steadfast direction and if you're a little bit more reserved in terms of how valuable you think your own anecdote and personal experiences you might lean a little bit more in, in the in the former but uh, that, that was just my thing that came to my head so I'm curious what anybody else thinks yeah, just to jump in here and kind of build off that a little bit, I think that the personal experience aspect is huge, right? Um, Josh, you mentioned like proximity to failure. I think that's a, a really interesting example of this happening because we talk about this all the time in our lab meetings. You know, there's how are they measuring that proximity to failure? There's a lot of different ways that people do it. Um, let's say that they're using RPE. That's a subjective measurement. So does your personal experience with that, do you feel people can be pretty accurate? Or have you not found that to be the case in your practical experience? Or maybe the group going to failure, um, are you sure that they actually went to failure? Right, there's, so there's a lot of gray area in there that I think that, um, and that's just one example of, of one area of research, but where our personal experience, even if it's subconsciously, can really get in there and exactly like you said, color the way that we see that data um, and the way that we interpret it. And I think that that's, a big piece of how two different people can look at the same data and come to pretty different conclusions. You know, it's, I think sometimes it comes down to just how skeptical are you or how does this line up with what you've seen in the real world? So um, as you guys have said, I'd love to get more input on that too, but um, that's just one thing that I wanted to put, put in there. And I think that that can really, I don't know, sum up what's, what's happening in a lot of these cases. Yeah, I think to, to add to that, and I think, you know, just reiterating what all of you guys have said, along with the kind of personal experiences that go into interpretation. I think you can also look at it as, as kind of the way that you weigh the literature and weigh each individual study, depending on how you, what you care about exactly. So if we're looking at strength, for example, you have something in single joint exercises versus multi-joint exercises, depending on how you care about the strength question and proximity uh, to failure question in relation to strength, you might weigh each of those studies differently, right? Even if it was a three RM, six RM, one RM. And so, I think that kind of background as well will influence not so much the interpretation because you could still interpret it that training closer to failure was better or training further from failure was better, but the way that you would weigh that would differ um, depending what the ultimate goal of the question is. You know, just for everybody listening, uh, if you're not super familiar, and then I want to get back to, to two points I think that were raised. Uh, one is the steadfastness um, versus conciliatory discussion that Josh had, and then uh, the other is why I think it's so difficult, as Zach alluded to, uh, to find significant differences between groups. Um, but for everybody listening, just this proximity to failure discussion, if you're not familiar, you know, we're talking about in resistance training, you know, a study might compare, they want to, essentially, they want to answer the, the empirical question is, how close do you need to train to failure to maximize skeletal muscle growth or to, to cause hypertrophy, to optimize muscle hypertrophy? And so let's say there's a group that trains on average about two repetitions shy of failure. Uh, they do a set of eight reps and they could do two more. Uh, and then another group that trains about, let's say four repetitions uh, shy of failure. And they try to equate for sets and reps and all of those other things that might impact training volume. Now, what everybody's getting at here, and, and Jake talked about this as well, is two things. One, how, 
how solid or how accurate is that measure of proximity to failure? So you could use something like velocity, which is an objective measure. But even if you track somebody's barbell velocity, you use, let's say, a linear position transducer, that velocity still needs to be individualized because Brian might do a repetition on the squat and he has two reps left and it's a 0.35 meters per second. But I might do a repetition on the squat with two reps left and it might be 0.40 meters per second. So one, there's a hurdle. We have to individualize that. If we use group averages, it's not going to be the same. Or if we use something like RPE that Jake talked about, which is rating of perceived exertion in resistance training, that measures something we call repetitions in reserve. So essentially for, for a clear, you know, concise explanation, it's just how many reps do you have left in the tank? So if somebody says, hey, I have two reps left, we say to this participant in a study, we want you to do eight repetitions and choose a load where at the end of those eight repetitions, you feel you could do two more. They might be accurate, but they might not be accurate. So this brings me to the point of why I think the point Zach brought up, you know, it's, it, things are rarely settled. If you think of applied physiology research and this resistance training research, almost always these studies are underpowered. And that's not a knock. We do underpowered research in our lab all the time, right? We are at the forefront of this. It's difficult to recruit human subjects on a college campus. And you have, um, you know, obviously this, this past year, the way the world has been, but you have, you know, winter break, spring break, all of these things and, and people traveling. It's difficult to get somebody to come to the laboratory for 10 consecutive weeks or so. And, uh, and also, you know, ask them to stop doing outside activities, no additional exercise, things that impact the study, stop taking any supplements. It's, it's difficult to control this, as you guys know firsthand. And so when we have underpowered research, eight, 10 people in a group, and then you're doing a study like proximity to failure, then you have people using, you know, saying how many repetitions in reserve they have at the end of the set. A couple people in each group are inaccurate. So some people that are supposed to be training four repetitions from failure may be saying they are, but might be training closer to two or three, or might even be training closer to seven to eight reps from failure. Same thing in the group that's supposed to be training two reps from failure. Now, this is why bigger sample sizes are better, because if you have bigger sample sizes, even if some people are, are farther from failure than they should be, and some people are closer, those are going to get washed out a bit, because on average, that number is going to be more where they should be. And even though it's a subjective measure, uh, it'll still be a bit more accurate with the larger number of people. But with a, a small number of people, you think about the issues we already talked about. Some people respond really well to training and some people don't. If you prescribe the same number of sets and reps for everybody, that volume might be okay for some and might not be sufficient for others. So in a small group over a six, eight week study, it's really hard to parse out differences. And so when we talk about understanding research findings differently or ambiguity and the personal experience that everybody's talked about here. And it's important because it's, it's likely that, especially if you have two groups training, you know, very different proximities to failure, it's likely that one on average might be slightly better than the other, but it doesn't mean you're actually going to observe that in an underpowered eight week study with all of those other variables. So then you know, you might look at the individual data and, and understand some individuals responded better to this intervention than that. But why? Why did they do that? You can't necessarily know. 
so it, it, there's things you could look at to possibly know if you understood how much training volume they were doing before the study and then how much they did in the study and, and possibly that was the reason for it. But it's difficult. So it's difficult to understand that. So I do think that our personal experiences and there's different levels of anecdotes, right? Um, you know, somebody who, who, who is a scientist and involved in data collection and has an anecdote from years and years and years or, or to, to use our field of resistance training, somebody who's been lifting and training for years and years and years has an anecdote. Uh, that might be a better anecdote than, than someone who has never been involved in this and, and, and just giving a, a thought process. And Josh mentioned this when he talked about if you have two people on the same level um, or of the same expertise. And so, you know, to that conciliatory versus steadfastness argument, I, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. This is, this is a pretty unscientific statement of me for a moment, but I don't know how much the conciliatory one makes sense. Like if you have, um, right. It, it, one of the, the, the big discussions in resistance training literature over the past few years is does muscle growth, is muscle growth a causative factor in uh, strength adaptations? And it, it either is or it isn't like, um, you know, it, it's now the, a good question is if it is to what degree is it, but it can't be both, right? Muscle growth can't cause uh, uh, strength adaptation and also not cause strength adaptation. It either does or it doesn't. And so I, I don't think it's somewhere in the middle. Now, somewhere in the middle might be to what degree is muscle growth a causative factor? Is it a primary driver of strength adaptation or is it out here on the edges? Is it neural factors and, and skill adaptation and other things that drive strength? So, um, you know, maybe this is my own, my own brashness uh, and, and not wanting to concede my opinion to anybody, um, at, least not to, at least not to you guys, um, that would be terrible. Um, but uh, I'm not sure how much the conciliatory, I guess on some things, uh, you know, it, it doesn't mean that the answer can't be in the middle, but if you, if your opinion on the data I, 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 is what it is and you're interpreting it that way, I, I'm okay with somebody being steadfast and that's what they think, as long as they're open to the fact they could be wrong. You yeah, know, so I think, I, yeah. I'll just chime in on this a little bit. I, I think, I think the case is different if it's something you're not pretty familiar on. So like if you are completely uneducated on a topic, I think it, you can make a case for kind of being in the middle of presented with something that's a little bit counter to your intuition. If like an expert is like telling you otherwise um, and you could remain a little bit more um, in the middle of maybe agnostic on a topic. But if it's something you're relatively educated on and you've seen data to put you in, like in, in one category of belief, to me, it almost seems like kind of a reverse appeal to authority. If you're simply reverting to the agnostic position because someone else is, uh, you know, of an authority, but it's not because you're actually buying their arguments, if that makes sense. If you're actually convinced by their position, you would sway all the way up to the other side because you're educated on the topic and you have been convinced by their position rather than reverting to right. the, to the middle of, of, of the stage of belief. So I, I guess that's, that's kind of the way I see it. If it's a topic that you are indeed educated on, you're either convinced by someone's arguments or you're not. Um, and if you're starting in the position of belief, you would go all the way to the other side in most cases, uh, if that makes sense. That could be off base. That's just kind of what came to my mind. No, it, 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 makes, it makes total sense to me. You know, it's, um, again, it, it, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with, I guess there's nothing wrong in my opinion with having a strong opinion. Um, as long as you're, you're open 
to the fact that in science that one, that opinion can be wrong. And two, you need to keep studying it objectively and as unbiasedly as possible. And this is almost a different topic, but um, it's very difficult to be, everybody has a bias. So, you know, when designing a research study, especially on a topic that, that you feel strongly about, you know, it, it's probably beneficial to involve somebody on the design of that study who takes the other side. And that's probably going to help you make it as objective as possible. So I think it's okay to sum up that, that Zach's point, um, to have a strong opinion and to not uh, and to not be convinced by somebody else's rhetoric on it. As long as you're one, open to listening, and two, open to the fact that I don't agree with that right now, but I understand that I could be wrong on this, and let's yeah, keep looking into it. That, that was the only thing I was just going to add, just to make sure my what I said was crystal clear is like, I don't think you should ever be absolutely certain about nearly anything. So like, e even if you're strongly convinced by a position, there's still a chance that you, you would sway the other, uh, other position given the, the necessary uh, argumentation and, and, and evidence. So just, yeah, I'm not saying if you can hold a strong opinion, but you're not absolutely certain about your opinion, if that makes sense. Right. I'd be curious to hear Josh, like a, a context example of what you mean. Cause when you said that my, my first thought was the proximity to the failure question as to whether we should never train to failure or sometimes train to failure. And that's just the question that came to mind. And I could easily see how you can take a kind of middle approach where it's like, hey, maybe sometimes taking a set to failures probably can be beneficial practically, maybe. So I'm not sure if that's kind of how you meant, because I can definitely see, like Dr. Zordos mentioned, right, either hypertrophy is contributory or not. Um, but yeah. Brian, I don't mean to cut you off. I think I think those are two slightly different questions, in my opinion. The okay. first one, the first one was, should I should I ever train to failure? And then the second question is, how often should I train to failure? I guess that's okay. that's the yeah. the two different questions I see. And and for the former, you know, you could conceive a a situation in which training to failure is probably appropriate. And then the next question is, you know, just given the correct context, how often should you do so? Um, I guess is the way I think about it. So. Yeah, the, the hypertrophy and strength one, I think it's it's important to define the question you're talking about when you have that kind of scale of belief um, to, to really define it down. But I guess that's that's where I thought. But Josh, go ahead, chime in if I missed something or anybody else. I think I think these are all really good thoughts. And I think perhaps we've kind of been talking about two separate things in parallel, because I think when you and, and just to be clear, I'm not necessarily arguing for conciliationism. Um, I just think it's an interesting discussion. Um, but I think even just when talking about this concept, we, we're, we've kind of been talking about two separate things in parallel. The first is the level of confidence in which you hold a belief. And the other is how you apply it. And, and I probably didn't communicate this super well. So I think in the discussion of whether hypertrophy is a contributory factor to increasing uh, maximal strength, I think you could say, okay, there are individuals that are, you know, the highest level of expertise in the world and have a different opinion than me. So thus, I think that's grounds to have a more intermediate level of confidence on this topic. But I still feel convinced personally um, by my interpretation of the research and thus I'm going to apply it um, kind of more on the steadfast side of things. So I think it's there's a difference between the level of confidence in which you hold a belief and how you might apply it in practice. Because I agree with, with your point, Dr. Zordos, very much so in that if you're convinced by something, why would, you, um, why would you compromise that in practice? So I think those are two separate things that are important to distinguish is your level of confidence and how you might actually apply it in the real world. Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. You know, ultimately, 
especially in our field, in our area of research, because few things are ever settled, it's really interesting. We, we, we often have, I know I do this, a different scientific answer to something and a different practical answer to something. Because my scientific answer on a lot of things is, I, I don't know for sure, I can't say that. You know, here's what the data says on this, here's what the data says on this, it could go either way. But my practical answer is, I lean in this direction, I have to make decisions to understand how I'm going to train or how someone else is going to train or what I'm going to recommend. Because if somebody is you know, a competitive strength athlete or a competitive endurance athlete or playing in a, a sport, whatever that is, and they ask you, what should I do? Or, or they're going, they have to train for that activity. So what do they do? They, you can't just say, well, I don't know. You know, I have to empirically study this and get back to you. You can say that in terms of, I, I, I can't say this for certain. And that's what Josh is getting at in the, the level and the degree of confidence. But ultimately, they're going to want your opinion. They're going to say, you know, Josh, Becky, as an expert on this topic, as a scientist and, and a student studying this, what should I do here? And it's okay to say, to give the, the purest scientific answer. Um, but then to also say, in practice, here's what I would do at the moment. And I, I think that's also important in distinction, which is to always, always clarify, especially as I think if you're involved in science, this is, this is almost the duty that you have, is to let people know when you're not speaking purely scientifically. And it doesn't mean you're not, you're not, I guess you're not speaking in a somewhat scientific manner, but that you're saying this is open to interpretation and here's what I think. You know, and if I'm teaching a class, I always do that. You know, I say, okay, guys, here's my answer on this. But here's what I think. Understand, I could be wrong. The data isn't settled on this. But our field is so interesting because, you know, it's you have to make training decisions. Now, fortunately, uh, you know, these decisions for, for many of us are only so important, right? It's, it's just lifting weights. So it's, it's, it's only so impactful for how, you know, big or strong somebody is going to get. But I do think that that happens a lot in our field where you have a scientific answer. I don't know. And you're very clear on that point, but it's then okay to almost take a step back and in a more casual tone say, okay, but here's what I would do if I were you at the moment for your specific situation. And here's how I would interpret it, but I could be wrong. So uh, it, it's okay to have those two clarifications as long as you're clear on which is which. The that's so interesting that you brought that up. I've been thinking that too, as we've been having this conversation about how much this field is so interesting because there's so much crossover between the science and the practical, right? Like there's, there's people that are trying to do both sort of at the same time. And to kind of tie this back into some of that proximity to failure stuff we were talking about, uh, there's an idea for how close do we need to train to failure to maximize muscle growth. Typically people throw around this, you know, within four repetitions from failure, is your sweet spot. And from a scientific perspective, I think we would all agree that the data isn't there to definitively say that that's the case, right? Um, but from a practical perspective, we know that there might be issues with how accurately you can rate your RPE. So in a practical sense, I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb because if somebody tries to stop a set at three to four repetitions from failure, especially if it's something like a leg press or a squat, they're probably going to be six, seven, 
eight repetitions from failure, right? At least, you know, on average. So, and I think that the data is there to support that that's probably good enough to maximize hypertrophy, at least in some cases, uh, if the load is heavy enough, so on and so forth. So I think that's just one example of what comes to mind of like, Dr. Zardes, what you're saying about being clear when you're giving the scientific answer versus when you're giving an answer that's maybe a little bit more helpful in a practical sense. You know, um, it, it's so funny you, you bring that up because in the practical sense, it's not only the, the physiology that matters, especially in this field with, with uh, you know, humans training. So you say, Jake, that, you know, training, you know, roughly no, no more than four reps from failure um, is a good practical recommendation. And so what I would say is it's probably a good practical recommendation, not because I don't personally believe you can't train farther from failure than that, but because nobody really does that. Exactly. Who, who wants to do that? A lot of people simply just don't want to, to be told, hey, or be programmed for them to train five, six, seven repetitions from failure. They're not going to do that training. And if you're coaching somebody, it's like if you're coaching somebody who just gets into lifting weights and you don't program bicep curls, they're either going to A, do them anyways, or B, find another coach. So um, even if that doesn't necessarily contribute directly to their goals that they, they have or that they've stated, um, that's just something that people that are going to want to do. And so if you say, hey, I want you to train uh, if I believe that you can train on the major compound lifts, squat, bench press, deadlift, things like this, you know, five, six repetitions from failure, and you can maximize muscle growth, which I, I think you can to an extent, probably not always, but that's a larger discussion. But let's just say, I think you can do that. And you always program that for somebody. Uh, a lot of people aren't going to want to do that. And so that's where practical decisions and implementing these things come down to, you know, knowing that individual as well and knowing what they're going to adhere to. Because if they're not adhering to that, you know, that's the number one thing, right? It's just adhering to your training, whatever it is, and being able to do it. You know, real quickly, if a, a, a quick a quick poll, I know some of us do here, but Becky, when you train, on average, how many repetitions in reserve do you leave on each set? Between two and four, but I highly doubt that that's really the case. So would you... <laughs> I know how much it can fluctuate from week to week for me. And that really just depends on all the other stressors that I have and my training performance for that given time. So I think that it's, I think it's really important to emphasize that, that although we could be saying that we're training two repetitions in reserve, at, at a two repetitions in reserve, that could be that we're completely wrong with that statement. And a lot of times that's the problem with the subjectivity of RIR or RPE in the sense, because it's like, we could be prescribing this or giving this to, um, to subjects or to our clients and stuff like that. But that could be still, it's very subjective. And then by using something where it's more objective, even in the sense that's more individual. So it's hard to say that everyone should be training at a certain range. You know what I mean? Yeah. So do you think when you say two to four, but it's probably not that, do you think you're on average closer to failure or farther away from failure than you're stating? Further. You think you're further from failure? Does anybody here, um, you know, take the opinion as I do that you could probably train 
you know, fairly far from failure, but doesn't actually do that in practice or gets Jake. Yeah. Talk to us about that. The, (laughs) a lot of you guys have seen me train that for me, it is, I agree with you on a scientific level, right? That, that, that is good enough. Uh, but to me, again, this is where the, the practical side comes in. To me, that's not fun. Right. And enjoying my training is what's more important. On average, I would say at most two reps in reserve across the board, at most. Uh, I train to failure a lot more than what is probably recommended. It, I train to failure um, a lot more than I would recommend to clients or to, to people who are trying to understand you know, what's quote unquote best for, for training practice. Um, but just because it's fun. And like you're saying, it's that adherence and your enjoyment is ultimately the most important thing. Right. That's, that's one thing I was going to plug in. Like, this is often something that's lost in these conversations. I, I think like, like many things, if two things are just as good as one another, you know, that's where preference can kind of dictate what you're going to do. And, and to my understanding, I, I don't think there's more than like a couple studies that show that failure is actually worse. So I think that's important yeah. to realize. So for, you know, people like Jake uh, and, and then others that just anecdotally think that that is you know, on an individual level, maybe uniquely beneficial for that person. Um, I think that's where you can make a case that, you know, maybe that kind of uh, intervention may be a little bit more beneficial for that person. But I, I also um, have been um, on some accessory movements and stuff, completely ditching the, uh, my scientific beliefs and just, and just going to the house on a few sets, just because like Jay said, it's fun. And I think, uh, you know, there, there's a, like a few factors that manipulate how strong uh, or how confident I am in the fact you can train farther from failure. The load you're using, like Jake said, how many sets you're doing, uh, that kind of thing. So I think there's there's some other factors that kind of manipulate how, how uh, much confidence I have in that. And most importantly, like Jake said, it's fun. And if it's not worse, fun's usually the, the yeah. direction I'll lean. And we could, you can make an argument that could be beneficial in the long run to have that at least a little bit because it gives you more opportunities to anchor what a truly low yeah. RIR. It's another, another practical thing, right? Like you're, you're learning that on top yep. of it. So, so that's, so that's a great point. Tommy, go ahead, man. Go ahead. I think it's uh, really important to hear like Jack and uh, Jake and Zach uh, also saying like, even us being people of like science, you could say, and knowing the ramifications of maybe training close to failure and like the actual value of it. I think fun and just like a real life application is such a huge importance and I think even people, not us, who don't care about research, who don't, they just want someone to tell them what to do. Half of lifting or even more than half of lifting is fun. And I also think to bring up kind of like another topic, I think maybe for people who aren't familiar with research, uh, specifically in this topic, I think everyone kind of has an inherent like thought when they start training that being closer to failure is better. So I think there might be a problem with the buy-in factor as well. Because if you're prescribing someone maybe who's newer to the gym, who has no idea about like, you know, all of this stuff, train an RP4, five, I think there could be discussion to be had about, is it going to work? And then they kind of placebo themselves into thinking that it doesn't work. And I think that can affect training outcomes in itself, but that's obviously really hard to quantify in a research setting, but that's just like a real life application that comes to mind for me. But that's a, that's a phenomenal point. And, you know, I, I think it's important if you're coaching, training somebody, and, and this is probably spans across fields. I, I just think of our field and, and what we know, but Tommy's point is so good in that I would say you, as a, as, a, as a coach, or if you're out there in practice, you give people some of what they need, but you also give them some of what they want. And that if you know that individual, and as Tommy's alluding to here, 
and you understand their personality and their personality is they're going to go in the gym and they're, they're just going to crush it. And they want to have that feeling of where they're sore. They're a little beat up uh, and, and they're, they're going to sleep at night and they just, they just feel kind of worn down from that training session. And, and they love to, they love to get after it. You know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's the year 2001 and they're listening to drowning pool while they're lifting weights. Um, you know, you guys, you guys probably don't know about that. Um, but you know, if that's, if that's them, you give them some of what they need and some of what they want. So they're getting a scientifically based program. And then when you give them some of what they want, and we've been talking about training to failure, and it's a very nuanced discussion outside of what we're getting here. So that's perhaps a topic for another day of, of all of those times when it is appropriate and what it depends on and somebody's recovery or recoverability and all those things. But you would probably then work in some failure training on some exercises that aren't going to cause as much fatigue at the right point in the week when it's not going to negatively affect the next training session, rather than saying, okay, you like training to failure, we'll just do it all the time on deadlifts and then you'll be beat up all week. You'll give them some deadlifts that are a bit more appropriate, but you'll give them some biceps curls and some lateral raises and things that are a bit less demanding or a bit less likely to cause long lasting fatigue, but allow them to train to failure, maybe with a little more volume, they'll like that feeling. So I'm a big believer in, in what Tommy pointed out, which is the person has to, has to have that buy-in. And you know, you, in team sports, you hear this all the time, right? Do they continue, do they buy into the coach? Does that coach have the pulse of the team? And do those athletes buy into his or her coaching style? And if they do, that's, that's gonna be a good thing. Um, if they don't, they might have some talent, but they don't have the buy-in. They're not working hard in practice every day. They're not getting after it. It's a similar concept. If you're training, coaching a, a lifter and you give them some of what they need, but some of what they want. And then over time, they start to see the progress. They buy into your trust. Then if something that they want to do just really isn't a good idea, you'll probably have better success after a year, two years, three years, weeding that behavior out, uh, and then getting them to, to, you know, do what you want. So, I think it's, um, it, it's, it's really important. There's a lot of, there's a psychological aspect to, to a lot of that as well. So um, yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more, but for everybody out there who, who is in this field and does um, tend to coach or train, I think that the want and need aspect is important to manage. I think, I think it's important to, you know, to bring some research back on this. But one thing I always talk about with clients when they're like, you know, having the mindset of like, no, I don't want to do what I want to do. I just want to do what's optimal or like treat themselves like a machine. Like I, I really like some of like the placebo steroid research to talk about like how positive expectations can like legitimately influence your outcomes. Um, and I think that's similar to, you know, it's not a one, one-to-one like, you know, crossover to like putting in bicep curls to failure for someone's program. But I think it's a similar concept in saying, if we can, you know, make a few compromises to get this person super juiced up on what's, you know, what's on their program or, or just get the overall positive expectations kind of flowing to start a, to start a training program or when you're working with someone, I think that can legitimately influence outcomes to the point that it's like pretty impactful where most of the time people are just like kind of shooing that as like a, yeah, you know, I, I want to enjoy my training, but I want results. It's like, no man, like if you actually enjoy things, there's, there's pretty good you know, reason to believe that that probably will positively influence your outcome. So that's always something I like to um, think about with that too. To, to tie this around, uh, just kind of circle back to the original question, Dr. Zordos, you asked of disagreement amongst people in a certain space. I think there's, and, and Zach kind of touched on this, is 
different people might value different things when looking at a scientific paper. So for example, there's been more and more research on uh, like refeeds or diet breaks recently. And I don't definitely don't claim to be uh, like know the ins and out of, outs of this literature. I, I'm, I would probably default to Jake on this, but my understanding is that uh, you can kind of look at the dropout rates to get an idea of some of the adherence levels to these uh, certain interventions. So a certain individual consuming that, that scientific paper might really value the dropout rate comparison between the two groups and come to a different practical conclusion than somebody that, that doesn't really value that dropout rate as much because they're more the type of person that wants to do what is on paper like truly optimal and they're going to adhere to that no matter what. Whereas again, somebody else might, might value, um, might, might kind of look at the, the, the value of that number a little bit differently. So that's just a thought that came to mind is I think research of course has limitations, but it can also kind of point out the limitations of the outcomes by looking at things like, like dropout rates. Yeah. And it's, there's so much going on with that too, because then still up to now, the, the research in that area is, is not really lining up with the anecdotal experience of a lot of people um, in the sense that I think if you asked most coaches and athletes that have done those types of things, refeeds and diet breaks that they would almost across the board, most people will say that they've felt like a physical benefit. They can perform better. They feel more recovered, those sorts of things. But the research just isn't really showing that at least not yet. Um, so that comes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, how much do you value that anecdote of the coach who's been doing this for 20 years and had all of these successful clients versus the black and white? Well, this study said this though, you know what I mean? So it's, it's just another example of how that comes into play. And, and Josh, like you're saying, there's the different measures within these studies. You know, they, they take these psychological questionnaires. How much stock do you put into that? Because it's inherently subjective versus how much stock do you put into the strength test? Was the strength test a squat 1RM or was it, you know, maximal isometric force on a leg extension? There's just, there's a lot of moving parts and it can be really difficult to kind of parse that, you know, apart and, and figure out what to, what to actually do in practice. Um, yeah, my, my point's kind of trailing off at this point. So someone else pick up the fumble for me. Well, it, it, it makes me think of, um, you know, if, if you compare two things or you compare something to a control and there's no difference, but you feel good doing that thing let's say on the group, on the group level, there's no difference. That doesn't mean there's no difference for you as an individual. Um, but even if there is somebody were to measure and there's no difference for you as an individual, but you feel good. And it's also a non-invasive strategy that doesn't take much time. doesn't cost you any money. That's fine. Right. There's, it's okay. Like, you know, sometimes I, I feel that things get overboard, you know, when one strategy isn't better than a control, um, just to give an example, you know, I, I, I don't believe the data shows that uh, foam rolling post resistance exercise enhances recovery that much. Maybe a little bit, some studies not at all. It improves range of motion before exercise, but I don't think it's something that you should, should be your, if you're really beat up after a training session, that's going to be your recovery modality that gets you back to the gym way earlier. Um, I, I don't think the data is consistently showing that, um, but it takes a few minutes. 
it, it's not a difficult thing to do. It might help you a tiny bit. And if you feel better when you do it and you have the time, right? You know, if you're, if you're a student listening to this and, uh, you know, you got an exam to take 10 minutes after training and foam rolling takes 15, you should go to the exam. But if you don't have anything else to do uh, and it doesn't take up any time and that's what you like to do and you feel better, do it. It's not costing you anything. You know, it's, it's different than saying, hey, I, this supplement, I feel better when I take it. There's no data supporting it, but it costs me 50 bucks a month. Don't, don't take it. You know, um, uh, it, it's, it's not, it, 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 there is a cost to that and that there's a literal cost to that one. But for something like the foam rolling example, um, so when Jake describes, you know, it's not matching up in practice and maybe there's equivocal evidence, but it doesn't seem to be harmful. Um, in general, saying something isn't harmful is not a good justification to do it. But if it's not harmful and there's no cost to it, whether it's opportunity cost, monetary cost, whatever, it's a short time period and you actually have some placebo effect and you feel better, I would say that that's okay. You know, if I'm coaching somebody, I wouldn't tell somebody to stop doing that then. If there was a significant cost to them, I would say, hey, we, we should discuss and maybe we should stop doing this. Um, but if there isn't, then, then I, I think that's okay. And so in part, I think, uh, uh, Jake, I don't know if that's fully what you're getting after, but that's what it made me think of. Yeah, for sure. I think that's something that I, I think about a lot with that kind of thing. Even if it's like, is it physiologically better? Uh, research says no, at least so far, but it's not worse either, right? So then it's, to me, that's a, that's a really cool thing. To me, that's even better because now we just have more options on the table right. and we can fit it. Like no matter what your lifestyle, your life constraints, whatever, we can fit something really effective into there. So I think it's more freeing that way too. I think it, this kind of ties into something that was said earlier too. If we took the evidence-based approach and ran with it all the way through, we'd be, we wouldn't have much to really go off of. Like we're all going to have our own arbitrary starting points. And rather than taking like a full evidence-based approach to your decision-making, rather a more evidence-conscious, you're conscious of the, the literature of the, you know, the ins and outs of either this could work, this might not work for this individual. That's going to inform your decision-making a lot more than if you just take the very evidence-based, trying to go solely by what the literature says, when ultimately it's going to be pretty ambiguous, right? You're not going to have a lot of things to go off of. That's just kind of how I like to think about it. I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts. I think one thing that maybe kind of jog my memory about what we were talking about earlier is like, you know, it's, it's often said, you know, research deals with averages and not individuals, but I think like just understanding truthfully what that means, like, you know, when we look at the results, if a study reports the individual data, it's like, there can be some people that respond extremely positively to an intervention and some people that respond extremely negatively. And that could result in the same mean as a ton of data points all spread around the mean. And so, you know, if we're not given that individual data, you would kind of interpret that in a similar fashion. But if you are given the individual data, you're probably looking at, at that considerably different. So going back to Dr. Zordis's foam rolling example, like, um, you know, if some people are getting a very, very positive effect, that's, you know, that's something to take into account. But additionally, if there is some people that like, I've heard, you know, people that are kind of on the opposite side of the foam rolling discussion is like the dependency argument. So like some people that get really, really accustomed to doing it every session, now their foam rollers left in their car. And now they have like a, a internal breakdown at the gym because they didn't get to get their, you know, their foam rolling prior to, to training. So like, that's the other side of it too, right? It, it is, it, you could have individual responses on either side of that mean. So it's just important to understand 
um, again, that's just another piece of the puzzle. And oftentimes we're looking at those averages without understanding the actual spread of the individual response that could be both positive and negative. I want to I want to really emphasize what you said there, Zach, about each each study, I guess, being a piece to the puzzle, because like you said, there's all the individual variation and, and kind of going off what Brian said, if we just follow like these group based average findings from the most recent meta analysis and we just stick to that, I would actually argue that's not evidence based because we look at other pieces of the puzzle where you maybe have a within subject design and one leg of an individual is doing a certain training program and the other leg is doing a different uh, training program. And we know that, you know, individual A might see um, better results from a certain training program and individual B might see better results from the other training program. So if you add in that puzzle, I would say the evidence-based um, approach would not be to follow the group-based averages from the most recent meta-analysis. But of course, it's a good starting point because the average is your best bet just mathematically. Um, but I think, I think you can, you can like say that acknowledging the limitations of research is also evidence-based, if that makes sense. Yeah, a hundred percent. It makes me think of just to continue on Josh's example and thought back to the proximity to failure literature for a moment. If somebody were to, obviously you can, you can pick out this study here or there to support whatever point you want, but you know, if, if, if there's a bunch of studies that come out and they're all going to use a frequency of one time per week training um, on, let's say, a single joint muscle group in an untrained population, and they have a ton of sets all to failure versus some sets not to failure, my bet would be in that one time per week training that the failure would be the better way to go. It's a, probably a better stimulus for one session. And remember, one of the drawbacks potentially of failure is that if you train to failure on a Monday, let's say our recommendations are to train two to three times per week on a muscle group and you train to failure on a Monday. And then on a Wednesday, you want to train that same muscle group again. You're still fatigued and it might compromise your training volume. Whereas if you stayed shy of failure, you might be able to accumulate more volume throughout the week. But if you're only training once per week, failure might be a better way to go. So the study design, as Josh is alluding to, impacts that as well. And for different study designs or different availability for some people to train or just a different way or a different preference to go about things, you know, our, our recommendations might change uh, based upon what they're doing. So, you know, and then in, in to, to Zach's thought too on uh, understanding the individual outcome, to give a physiological example of this, you know, over, over the last 20 years now, there's been a, a pretty decent, even more so, pretty decent amount of research on uh, the amino acid beta alanine and its uh, ability to increase time to fatigue uh, in exercise. And there's individual responses to this. What beta alanine does is it increases intramuscular carnosine. Now, people have different levels of intramuscular carnosine. If carnosine is lower, because carnosine is a buffer, and if carnosine is lower, you're going to have a lower physiological buffering capacity, and you're probably going to fatigue from acidosis more quickly. But so if carnosine is lower and you take beta alanine, your carnosine levels are going to get a bigger boost. And you might be somebody that sees a benefit from that compared to somebody who already has higher carnosine levels, similar on, on, in the supplement game to how um, you know, L-arginine isn't isn't necessarily effective in individuals that have um, normal or higher levels of nitric oxide. But if people have low levels of nitric oxide or in a cl clinical condition, then L-arginine does seem to be effective. Now, whether this is more effective than using 
the amino acid citrulline in that situation, I think is debatable, but it depends on what your NO levels are for, for that supplement. It depends on what your carnosine levels are potentially for beta alanine, and of course, the type of exercise you're doing. Um, but those are individual things. And how do you know that? You don't know that uh, if, you're, if you're an athlete looking to take these supplements, you don't know that. So it's possible, even if the group mean is trivial uh, for a benefit, that it could, it could impact you in that manner. And then back to just summarize the proximity to failure point, the study design impacts what recommendation you would make. Because I might have my thoughts. And when I say, you know, I don't think you need to train to failure. I think you'd probably train pretty far from it. I'm thinking of someone who is a, a veteran resistance trained individual athlete who's training two to three times per week on a muscle group with high volume. But if you have somebody who's only going to train once per week on a muscle group and is a, a relative novice, um, let's say a, a lack of a better term, a, a weekend warrior, if you will, um, you know, my, my recommendations might be different. I agree. And just to piggyback off of that one more time, I know that like, especially within the research that I've been looking into as of late, it's been a lot of um, whether or not exercise performance in general is affected by um, whether or not you're consuming birth control or not. And oftentimes with this literature, we see trivial effects all the way around all the time. And so a lot of that has to do with the sample size, what kind of exercise they're doing. A lot of times that's not controlled. So I think that just to kind of hit that point home is that we can't just automatically assume that the evidence is clear and concise because it's not. Um, because a lot of times, specifically within this research, a lot of times the sample is really the biggest um, implication there. But I think that it's important to just kind of like take that in and just know that like whatever you're doing, if it works for you, that's great. Um, but sometimes in science, it's a little bit more difficult than that. For, um, you know, just for everybody, anybody that's listening, you know, this is a, a good point that, that Becky brings up and the topic she brought up, you know, you're going on to, you're going to be starting your PhD in the fall at UNC Greensboro, and you're going to be studying this topic specifically. And I think that's pretty cool. You found an area that you enjoy and you're going to be kind of, it's still in the exercise realm, but it's a little bit of a, of a different field than what we do on a daily basis. Resistance training programming still applies, but you're, you're looking at how, you know, contraceptives affect performance. And so with the ambiguity or the equivocal nature of the data, uh, from looking at it and studying it for these past, you know, six months or so, I'd say, do, do you have an opinion or on any specific area um, that even though the data is equivocal, where you think it, it matters? Uh, or to, to, to go back to our meta discussion, is there an area in or, or a part of this field where you would say, yeah, it's equivocal in the literature, but because of this, this, and this, here's where I think it matters. So just to put out like a broad claim, I don't, I, I've never actually conducted science in this realm, but- You, you, you will, you will though. Yes, but I will. So based on what it's, and I'm sure that a lot of these guys have their opinions on the matter too, since we've had discussions about this, but specifically with birth control, because you have a lot of athletes who do not have regular menstrual cycles, um, their coaches will uh, recommend them to be on these supplements so that they do have a reg regular menstrual cycle and that they can dictate when they perform certain competitions, such as like, say, gymnastics. You can't really control when your menstrual cycle is going to lie. 
So sometimes coaches will um, kind of manipulate that in a way. And same with resistance training. We've seen in the literature that um, in for humanary women who regularly get their periods, if they were to um, specifically test them looking at like something like uh, men versus women, um, a lot of times in that early follicular phase when they're first menstruating, that's when their hormones are going to be the lowest, which is kind of more um, on an equal footing as males that they're being compared to. So you can kind of manipulate that in a way if you don't want to see too much of a change versus if you do, like if you do want to see a huge change, then you'll test them obviously when their hormones are out of whack all over the place. And even for that, you can't really control what that is unless they're on birth control where you can kind of manipulate that. But though that's, um, that's not, that's, uh, what's a supplement that you're ingesting rather than the estrogen that's inside of you. So it's still a bit different and the, um, metabolic adaptations to that are completely different. So I think just a broad statement is you can manipulate it if you'd like. Um, but you can also manipulate it in the other end if you, you know, if you want to see a change versus not. Um, but yeah, just a broad uh, claim, I would say, is if you don't want to see too much of a difference with men and women, test them early on. And a lot of times they do that um, in a lot of the sex difference literature. Um, but then obviously the more damage you'll see is in the later part. So, so even though it may not matter if you, if you compare men and women in the early follicular phase, from a pure scientific standpoint, from a control perspective, that's probably the way to go is what you're saying. You know, even though it may not matter later on, physiologically, it makes sense that it might. So it would be better to test them in that phase. Is that a, uh, is that a solid summary? Absolutely. And I think too, if you're looking at different markers in the blood, it's more controlled if you were to take their, um, their levels at that point and compare them, if that makes sense. And I'm sure, you know, everyone has their own take on that, but that's just kind of what I've taken away from it. If you want more control and there's many different ways, like you could still be testing somebody in the wrong cycle and not even know it. That's why it's important to verify those. Um, and specifically the advisor I'll be working under, she's done that a few times and kind of um, emphasized the need for verification of the menstrual cycle before we do anything else. And a lot of times, in the literature, they're not actually verifying that. So we could be testing that at all, at all different times. So it's kind of still a little bit um, all over the place. You, you know, as you were, you just made a couple of the really good points and I was thinking, so the outcome measure that you're testing matters too, because if you test men and women later in the menstrual cycle, you may not see a, a performance difference or a performance dip in women although you may, but you may not, but that doesn't mean that their, their biomarkers aren't still going to be uh, you know, fluctuated from where they were in the early follicular phase. So I think the outcome measure that you're testing you know, matters there as well. And so that, that's probably a, a broader, a, a very clear uh, case, but that is good for our, our other general discussion too, which is you know, what the outcome measure that you're testing um, you know, matters for when you do it or how it's designed. And if we go back to the proximity of failure example, again, you know, once a week versus, you know, um, you know, let's say three times a week, if you measure the, the outcome of a once a week training to failure, you're going to see maybe fatigue lasting till Wednesday, but who cares? Because they're only training once per week if they train on Monday, 
if you measure that and they train and, and you might then correlate and say higher levels of muscle damage were associated with greater levels of muscle growth. But we know from some studies over the past few years that muscle damage is probably not a causative factor in growth and muscle growth and the relationship, even just the relationship, the correlation between muscle damage and growth isn't necessarily very strong. But if you were to just have somebody, a group of people trained to failure one time a week and a group of people not, um, you might see that. Uh, but if you have them trained three times per week, then that failure training might compromise volume later in the week. And even though they might have higher muscle damage, they might actually see less muscle growth. So the study design depends on all of that and can make you come to different conclusions uh, about the relationship between those variables. So uh, Becky, the, the point you gave there when you, you talked about the biomarkers, I think it matters and how you're doing that research as well. If you're measuring performance or if you're just looking at uh, you know, acute changes in, in those biomarkers. So it'll be interesting to continue to talk to you about this. Um, I mean, you're, you're leaving us, you're forsaking the lab and you're, you're leaving us in the fall. Um, but uh, no, we're, we're very proud of everybody that's moving on on a serious note. And, and it'd be very interesting to continue to talk to Becky about this when she's into her PhD and you, you have conducted research on this in a few years and see if your opinion changes and, and, and how it morphs over time. So guys, uh, you know, thanks for, for joining here. I think uh, this was an awesome episode one uh, for everybody out there listening. Uh, we will continue to bring you episodes here on a monthly basis and have uh, sometimes all of us, sometimes a collection of us here on these episodes and we continue to do this uh, hopefully for forever and until the end of time.